Why don't we return our Bibles this morning to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, where the Lord Jesus, I think you'd agree with me, has been sharing some pretty heavy things with his disciples since the upper room discourse started all the way back in chapter 14. And of course, we have the abide with me section in chapter 15. And, you know, at some point he may have left the upper room and started his way with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, or even this may have still been there in the upper room, but he is dealing with some pretty hard matters, matters that could and would create distress in any of us if we were there in that room with him. And of course, that would probably become to those disciples one of the longest nights, if not the longest night of their lives, even a night that would last for days, a night it seemed to them would never end. And that's what Jesus was preparing them for. Have you ever experienced one of those nights? Not just a, a night that lasted a night, but a night that lasted for days. Restless, sleepless, filled with worry and distress and discouragement, even to the point of depression. Just wishing and just hoping that morning would come. Not necessarily the morning of the sunshine flowing through your window. But just some light of hope that could reach your heart and soul. I think we've all been there. And that's just where Jesus' disciples were entering. They were entering that dark night. They were not even in the midst of that dark night yet. They haven't even come to the other side of that dark night where there was just that glimmer of hope yet, even though Jesus had been hinting about that and making promises to them about that, yet they hadn't even gone there yet. Well, in the verses that we come to this morning, we find Jesus again promising to his disciples some of that sunlight. Some of that sunlight that would break up the darkness of their night that they were about to go through, but also that darkness that they were already going through that we've already seen in this chapter. You see, Jesus already told his disciples about his departure from this world, and for those disciples, that would have been a very discouraging time. Wait a second. You're the one that chose us. You're the one that loves us. You're the one that has been there for us, and now you're saying you're going to leave? And even though at this point the disciples didn't fully understand that his departure involved his death from them, their hearts, according to verse 6 of this very chapter, were still filled with sorrow. Jesus knew that. Jesus tells them that he knows that. And so they were already filled with darkness in their soul. But even more, Jesus told his disciples about the distress. Not just his departure, but also what that departure would bring about. And that is distress that they would face both in this world through just ordinary suffering but also distress by this world, even through persecution that would take place after his departure. And I'm sure that that added to their distress, that added to their sorrow, that added to their darkness, the darkness of their hearts, so that the night started to feel a little longer already, and they were just getting started. But even though Jesus had already tried to comfort them and us, with the promises that he made all throughout about that comforter. That comforter who we've learned is the Holy Spirit of God, being sent by the Father, by the Son, who would continue Jesus' ministry both with us and with the world. We saw the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world as being a, a witness and who would convict and convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And, and certainly that was what we needed. We need the Holy Spirit to do that before we could ever come to faith in Christ. But then the ministry of Jesus continues in the Holy Spirit as he illuminates us about his word, just as the Holy Spirit instructed and inspired the disciples to give us that word. And so the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would be in us. And the Holy Spirit is here helping us. He's truly the comforter. And that would have been a help. That would have been a hope. But even with those promises, the disciples don't seem as convinced as Jesus was that it would actually be better and even more expedient, Jesus says, 
for them that he go away. I mean, I'm not sure I would think that that would be a better situation. I'm sure they didn't either. You see, the fact is, it was Jesus they knew, personally. It was Jesus they trusted. It was Jesus they followed. It was Jesus they loved. And how could, get, how could anything get better if Jesus wasn't with them? And so in the verses that we come to next, in verses 16 through 22 of John 16, Jesus offers another promise, another promise of light that could end the night that they were just entering into. And that promise was, according to verse 16, that in a little while they would see him again. Even though he talks to him about his departure, even though he talks to him about distress, he still makes that promise just a little while. Just a short time, and they would see him again. A glimmer of light in the darkness of their night. Let's read these verses of encouragement together from Jesus. Verses 16 through 22. A little while, he says, a little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. Because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father, they said therefore, What is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves? Of that I said, a little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful. But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow. Because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Now, even though it's clear from what we just read that once again the disciples had no clue what Jesus was talking about, or maybe a slight clue, but not a full clue, I think we're able to understand from our vantage point on this side of the cross, even 2,000 years after the cross, that there in verse 16, Jesus was giving his disciples really a, a basic timeline, a basic timeline of all that was going to happen to them starting that very night. Because when Jesus first says there in verse 16, a little while, and ye shall not see me, he's dealing very simply with a time of his departure through his death on the cross. Already in John, already through the Gospels, he's been giving out hints that he was going to depart through death. And here's another one of those suggestions. And it was true that in just a little while, even in just a matter of hours, Jesus would be taken away from their view. They would not see him. For a time. Again, a little while, and ye shall not see me. And at that time, and even through that time, it would be for his disciples a time of even greater darkness and greater distress and greater grief than they had ever experienced in their entire lives. This is a situation that we will never and have never faced in our lives. We can never go back to where the disciples were, even though we might be able to think about it and consider what they might have felt. But to be there for those days between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, just how distressing and dark those days must have been for them. I'm not sure we can really fathom the depths of that darkness. But Jesus knew that that would not be the end of the story. A little while and ye shall not see me. That's not the end of the story. Because then Jesus adds there at the end of verse 16, and again, a little while. So here's the furtherance of that timeline. 
So here we are, disciples, at this point, and just in a little while, you won't see me. But again, a little more time, a little more while will, will come about, and you shall see me. And with those words, Jesus is talking about the time of his return, not yet future for us, but what was immediate in their future. And that was through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus knew that this would begin the time of light and gladness, not just for them, but for the gladness of all who believe in him, both then and now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, the timeline, we're here just on the cusp of the arrest in the Garden of the Gethsemane, just a little while, and you won't see me because I'm going to depart through death. And then in a little while after that, you will see me again because I'm going to return through resurrection. And then he says, as we went through, that's when your joy begins. The sorrow of the night, the darkness of that night will be over, and the joy will begin for you. A joy that will be greater than the darkness and the grief that you ever faced. And so to comfort his disciples, Jesus wanted them to know that the period of grief and sorrow that they were already going through, that they were already experiencing, would only last what? A little while. A little while. And even though that grief would still grow, when they will not see him, there would still be hope in that end. And truly, I think in our own lives, when we have Christ in our life, and when we know Christ as our Savior, even those times of grief, even those times of distress, even those times of darkness and discouragement and despair, they don't have to last a long time. They can last a short time because of what we find next. You see, he also wanted them to know this period of gladness and joy would come to them also, again, in just a little while. So even those days of darkness wouldn't last forever. And the reason he gives for both here in this verse is because I go to the Father. Now, even though some translations and manuscripts don't have that phrase here in verse 16, it is found elsewhere in, in, in chapter 16. But this phrase still explains why in a little while the disciples won't see Jesus. Because he's going to go to the Father. And it also explains why in a little while after that they would see him. Because he went to the Father. You see, when Jesus died, he died to perform his mission for his Father. Why was it that Jesus came? How many times in John does Jesus say, I'm going to go to the one who actually sent me? And that implies the one that sent him had a mission for him, had a purpose for him. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to the Father when I die, when I depart, and I'm going to come back from the Father because I fulfilled the mission. I've accomplished the goal. I've done everything that my Father wanted me to do. When Jesus died, he would die to perform his mission for his father. And that's why when he died, he went directly to his father in heaven. But then, when Jesus rose again, he did so to prove that that mission was fully satisfied, fully accomplished to his father. But of course... All that was lost on the disciples. Again, this is from our perspective. This is from our vantage point. This is from looking at history. This is from looking at not just John, but all the other Gospels and all of the other accounts of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. This is from all the, all the other accounts that we find in the Gospels and, and all the New Testament. But the disciples weren't quite there yet. So confusion was added to their sorrow. So much so that we read in verses 17 and 18, after Jesus said these words... Which again, if we were there, we would have been confused too. Then said of his, some of his disciples, note this, among themselves. Now remember in chapter 14 when Jesus was there in the upper room with them and, and he'd washed their feet and there were some questions and answers. It was a Q&A session. Some of the disciples spoke up, asked questions. Jesus answered those questions, maybe not in the way they wanted, but the way they needed. And then later on, Jesus says, you know, you're not asking me any more questions because it seems like you know, they're, on, they're on the same page with them. But now they're really confused. A little while? I mean, how much longer is this really, Lord? And so they start asking questions, but they don't ask Jesus. They ask among themselves. How often do we do that? How often do we, when we struggle with things in our life, the things that I don't understand about Scripture, the things that I don't understand about my relationships, the things that I, that I don't understand about my own personal being, my own heart, how many times do we ask others first 
rather than the Lord. The Lord who knows us. He knows you better than you know yourself. Why do we ask others first? Why don't we go to the Lord first? And yet the disciples did the same thing. Then said some of the disciples, verse 17, among themselves, showing their confusion, showing their perplexity. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now, based on their own words in these verses, it's clear that the disciples heard what Jesus said and could even quote what Jesus said word for word. That, that's quite a, one of the interesting things, is that what they say Jesus said in verse 17 and 18 reflect exactly word for word what he just said in verse 16. They were listening. They were hanging on every word. And that, isn't that what a disciple truly is to do for Christ? We had to hang on every word that he gives to us from this word. I mean, when we read it, when we hear it, when we study it, we, we ought to be like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and say, I, I want to know what you have to say and, and not let a single one of those words drop. They knew that something important was going to happen. Jesus just said, a little while and you will not see me. And so as they're listening, they don't want a single one of those words to drop to the floor. They want to hide them in their hearts. And so they quote exactly what Jesus said, showing that the confusion was not in what they said, on what he said, but in what he meant by what he said. What is this? And of course, one of the main questions that they had was a little while. A little while. Now at this point, they should have started asking Jesus some more questions. I mean, they may have been on the same page earlier in this chapter, and in chapter 15, but now when they have those confusing, confusing thoughts, they should have asked those questions. Same with us. When we start to have doubts or fears or perplexities, we bring them to the Lord. First, it doesn't mean that you can't get counsel and can't get advice and ask those questions of others. But first and foremost, we need to take those questions not to everyone else, but to the Lord himself, especially when it came to this question of a little while. You see, they were confused about his departure in a little while. They were even confused about his destination during that departure. When he said, because I go to the Father, and they're confused even about the duration of that departure for a little while. Because Jesus said, a little while you won't see me, a little while you will see me. And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Well, they didn't say that yet to him. They said to each other. So what Jesus said went over their heads. You know, sometimes that happens to us, even when we're studying and reading Scripture, right? There are times when we come to the Word of God and it is just over our heads. And that's when we ought to start asking God questions. God, you've sent your Holy Spirit to illuminate my heart, to give me greater understanding. Maybe not quite ready for that yet, but will you teach me? Teach me through your truth. Teach me thy way. Because, oh Lord, I need it. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't do this with my own mental capacity. I need to be taught spiritual things and spiritual truths from you through your spirit. I need you to do this work in me. See, the fact is, these disciples didn't think they were ready for any of this. I mean, they didn't think, I mean, they heard about his departure before, but a little while, they weren't ready for that. They weren't ready for any of this, but for some reason, they just couldn't get themselves to ask Jesus about these things, so they asked each other with no answers, no solutions. It was kind of like asking the blind to lead the blind. But then Jesus takes this opportunity to explain to them a little more about the two periods that he described. You see, Jesus did care for their confusion. He did care for the concern for his disciples, and that's why in verse 19 it says, Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. Now, it says that they wanted to. They were desirous to. So the question comes, why didn't they? <laughs> Jesus knew that they wanted to, but for some reason they just couldn't get themselves to do this. And yet Jesus, in all of his compassion, and Jesus, in all of his wisdom, in all of his grace, in all of his mercy, he says, if you're not going to come to me, I'm coming to you. If you're not going to ask me, I'm going to share with you. 
isn't it a wonderful thing that we have Jesus? Isn't that wonderful that we have this God who does condescend to men and women of low estate? He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He knows that even there are times when we desire to ask, and yet we won't ask. And so he often brings us what we need in just the time we need it. Without even us sometimes asking for it, even though sometimes we will want to. So again, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And and so he says to them, verse 19, Do you inquire among yourselves? It's not that you're questioning. It's not that you have doubts and perplexities. It's not about the confusion. That's not a big deal, okay? We've already seen that in chapter 14. You ask me questions, I answer those questions. So if you have more questions, let me answer those questions too. And, And so he goes, do you inquire among yourselves? Of that I said a little while, and then he requotes himself from verse 16 without that one phrase about the Father. He says, a little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me. So he wants to answer their questions. The the questions not on, on their lips, but the questions of their hearts. And this leads up to, all this leads up to another one of his verily, verily statements. Did you notice that? One of his verily, verily statements there in verse 20. This is the 23rd out of 25 times in the Gospel of John where you find that verily, verily statement. He uses it to get the attention of those who he is speaking to. In fact, that would be a tremendous study in and of itself, of looking at all 25 of these verily, verily statements. We've already been through a bunch of them. We only have a couple more, but this is the 23rd. And every time that we've looked at this verily, verily statement, I want you to realize that he is focusing attention on a truth from different dimensions. When he says verily, verily, he means that what he's about to say is absolutely certain. Now, that's true of everything that he says, okay? He's not, he's not differentiating this statement with any other words that he says. But here he wants them to really take special note that what he's about to say is absolutely 100% verily, verily certain. But then he also says it's a truth that is constant. He says, verily, verily, I say. That's actually in the present tense. Verily, verily, I'm saying this to you. So it's not just a truth that exists then. It's a truth that lasts forever. It's a truth that is constant. He could say this to us because it's true for us as well. But it's also a truth that is consequential. It's certain, verily, verily. It's constant, I say. It's consequential because he's speaking unto you. He's speaking unto me. This is something they needed to hear. This is something they needed to know. This is something that you need to hear. This is something that I need to know. So Jesus wants all of us to listen up. Because even though we don't know just how much His explanation and illustration would help those disciples at that time. Again, I'm sure there's still some confusion in their hearts. It would help as they needed it to. Because through the next few hours of the darkness of that night, they would probably start to remember some of the things that Jesus says here. A little while and you shall see me no more. And again, a little while. And ye shall see me no more. Oh Lord, where are you? When will this take place? A little while. You said a little while. It's been 12 hours now. It's been 24 hours now. It's been two days now. It's been three days now, Lord. A little while. When will we see you? We know that what you say to us is true. We know that what you say to us is right. We know that what you say to us is verily, verily, but... A little while. It would help as they needed it to. Jesus wanted them to know that the period that would lead up to Jesus' departure through his death would first be for them a period of great grief. You think, well, that's not very encouraging, Jesus. You mean the grief that we're facing now, the sorrow that we have now, is actually going to get worse? Jesus says, yes, he's forewarning them. He's letting them know what is actually going to transpire in a little while. It's going to be a period of great grief. So there in verse 20, Jesus gives more explanation about their grief when he says, ye shall weep and lament 
but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful. Now, all three words that we find there about the disciples, weeping and lamentation and sorrow, they all deal with grief that are often found in the context of death. I think Jesus is using these words to express to them that his departure was not going to be about by any other means but death, his own death on the cross. All three words. To weep here describes a very personal grief, a personal grief that can be displayed with heartfelt tears. It's the kind of grief that you often go through when you lost someone close to you, when someone that you loved departed from you, when someone that, that was part of your family and one of your closest friends actually died, what do you do? You weep. It's a natural expression of personal grief. The last time this word was used in the Gospel of John was actually when Jesus' friend Lazarus died in chapter 11, and his sister Mary and the other friends, the Jews, were weeping. It's not the same one that, you know, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. <laughs> That's a different word for weep, but... In the same context, Mary and these others were weeping. Why? Because their brother and their friend had died. To lament here describes a public display of grief. Not just personal, but even public. Like a funeral, but more than a funeral. It was a more formal way to express grief over the death of a loved one. Back then, instead of hiring a mortician to you know, deal with all the funeral arrangements... A lot of times they would do that and they would hire professional lamenters. They would hire people that would come alongside the parade route as they were taking their loved one from one place to another to the, to the place of their burial. And they would actually have professional lamenters that would be moaning and groaning and crying. Can you imagine a funeral like that today? There are places in this world that have that kind of funeral, but... It was a public display of love, affection, and grief, and mourning for the one who went. But then, of course, to be sorrowful here, and this is something that we've already heard about the disciples. It describes a penetrating grief, a penetrating, permeating grief that the disciples were already feeling deep within their hearts. And so as bad as things already were, Jesus explains to the disciples here that in a little while, just a little while, things were going to get even worse for them. Because when will they experience this weeping and lamenting and sorrow? In a little while, ye shall not see me. Jesus here is in a very figurative way saying, you will not see me because I'm going to be taken from you by death. And this death will be a very sudden thing to them, and it will be a shocking thing for them. And to make matters worse, Jesus adds, the world will rejoice. Could you imagine the world rejoicing over the death of someone as Jesus? And yet the world rejoice over his death, and the world will even rejoice over their grief. It's interesting because the word rejoice in John is found in other contexts like that of a wedding. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 29, where Jesus' and his disciples were able to go to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and there was great, great rejoicing, happiness. And Jesus is saying, they're going to be as happy at my funeral and my death as you would be at a wedding. Talk about adding insult to injury. But then in verse 21, he even goes further and gives an example of their grief. And the example that he gives is of a woman when she is in travail, when she's in labor, and she has sorrow because her hour is come. So Jesus compares their sorrow and their grief with that of a woman in labor and in travail. And, and you think, well, why? That's kind of a strange illustration here. <laughs> why would he use this illustration? Perhaps because of how the pain intensifies as a woman's labor goes on and on and on. Now, obviously, today, there are ways of alleviating that pressure, alleviating that pain, alleviating that sorrow. But in a natural childbirth, you know and understand that that pain intensifies and grows the closer that labor comes, the closer that baby is going to be born. 
And I think that's for one of the reasons, saying, you know, as sorrowful as you are right now, I've told you about my departure. I told you about the distress you're going to face, but it's going to get worse. Like a woman in labor. But even more, I think, it's because the way Jesus puts it is that Jesus' hour had come, even as a woman's hour comes to deliver a child. You know, that's something that we all look forward to is when that woman's labor is over and that hour has come we look forward to seeing that baby born into this world i mean yes we're, we're concerned about the mom we love the mom thankful for the mom you know but the baby <laughs> i mean that's what we're thrilled about that's what our hearts are thrilled about because the hour had come and how many times have we already seen in the gospel of john that jesus said my hour has not come yet my hour has not come yet my hour has not come yet. What hour is he talking about? The hour of his departure through his own death that would come on suddenly and shockingly to his disciples. My hour had not come yet. But tonight, this very night, that night of darkness, his hour had come. And they would experience that sorrow even more. And then in verse 22, Jesus adds his own empathy for their grief in the first part of that verse when he says, And ye now therefore have sorrow. He's not talking about future sorrow. He's talking about present sorrow. You are having sorrow. Jesus could say this because he knew that. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew what they were facing. He knew the struggles they were going through right then, right there, and he cared about them. Again, it's, it's a lot like what he said back in verse 6 when he says, Because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. And so again, Jesus is empathizing with his disciples and says, And you now therefore have sorrow. The seed of the sorrow that will intensify at my death and my departure is already there in your heart. And I know that. And I care about that. Because I love you. Jesus knows what we're going through, doesn't he? And Jesus cares what we're going through. And so the bitterness and the grief and the sorrow that the disciples would face in just a little while through the death and departure of Jesus, they were already tasting but it was soon going to get worse. And so Jesus wanted to be open with them and honest with them. Of course, Jesus was open and honest with them all the time. But he also wanted to be open about what it would take to believe him and follow him. You see, this is one of the crosses that they would have to bear. A Savior who is dead. We can't imagine that. We're not in their shoes. We're not on that side of the cross. We're on this side. But their faith would be tested in such a way that perhaps our faith never has been or ever will be. A Savior, a promised Savior who was dead? They would go through the greatest period of grief in their lives. And Jesus wanted them to know that. All of this would happen, from our perspective, just a little while from when Jesus said these words. Jesus would suffer and bleed and die and then be buried away from their sight for nearly three days. Again, I'm not sure we can even imagine what their grief must have been like for those days. They didn't see Jesus. They couldn't see Jesus. But again, this is not where Jesus wanted to leave them. And so to help comfort and console them, to, to really show us where we get our hope and our help and our comfort and our consolation, he then tells them in each one of those verses that we just looked at, the opposite side, right? Not just about the period of grief that will lead to his death, but then in the timeline that he gives, the period of great gladness that also will come in just a little while. And so also there in verse 20, Look back there. Jesus gives more explanation about what this period of gladness when he says, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. This is the sunlight coming right through those windows into the darkness of their soul. And even though it's going to get worse and worse and worse for them, yes, the hope is in him and it will get better. This, in verse 20, is an amazing statement. He does not simply say that their sorrow will be replaced by joy. Did you catch that? He actually says that their sorrow will be turned into joy. There's a metamorphosis going on, just kind of like some of those animals that you know we talk about with kids. You know, you've got the, the little tadpole, 
that transforms into a frog, right? Or that little, you know, bug, that woolly worm that crawls around, will get into a cocoon and then transform and change and metamorphosize into a butterfly. I think I got that right. But Jesus is saying here, it's not that I'm going to give you something to replace it. In fact, the very thing that you're sorrowful about, the, real, the, the very thing that you're grieving about, is going to be the very thing that gives you joy. His death will give them joy. Now that's a transformation, isn't it? An amazing statement. This means, I, I love how one writer puts it, Leon Moore says, the very thing, the cross, that would be to them first a cause of sorrow would later become a source of joy. And, and I'd like to even add my thing to that statement. Not just a source of joy, but the source of joy. That's why it's in the cross of Christ we glory. Because the cross, which yes, is very much a cause for sorrow. When we think about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, is the very cause and source of the joy that we have as believers. Because it will lead to his resurrection. And of course, our redemption. And so Jesus says this to bring further light, further meaning to what he said again in verse 16. And again, a little while and ye shall see me. So even though they will experience great grief when he dies, a little while you shall see me no more. They will experience greater gladness, greater joy when he comes back from the dead. And again, a little more, a little while and ye shall see me. And they will. But then he, he illustrates that again. Look at verse 21. He gives the opposite of the grief and the sorrow and the pain and the labor of a woman who's with child. And here in verse 21, he adds the example of their gladness. Because what happens after a woman in labor gives birth? He goes on and says, But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy the man is born into the world. I obviously can't fully understand that, but my wife can. And she said, you know, that's very true in her experience. And maybe some of you mothers can say the exact same thing. Oh, it was painful. It was a long labor. It was challenging. But as soon as I was delivered of that child, I didn't even think about the anguish. I didn't even think about the labor. I didn't even think about the pain because there was joy that a man or a woman or a child, whatever it was, was born into the world. So even though the pain that this woman feels is real and intense and almost unbearable, and I've heard testimony that that's true. When the child is finally born, her thoughts don't go back to the labor. Her thoughts go forward to the newborn baby. And the height of that woman's joy and gladness is even greater than the depths of her pain and grief. And Jesus says, that's going to be true for you. A little while, you will see me. A little while, you ex will experience the gladness and the joy that that woman has in their baby. Because in just a little while, it will be like Jesus himself is born again. When he is alive from the dead. Wow. The resurrection brings rejoicing. The resurrection brings joy. This is what we're going to be celebrating in just a few weeks at the end of March. The resurrection of Christ. But this is not just something for Easter. This is something for every one of us. Every time in our lives. The reason why we come to celebrate the Lord. And to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. Is because this is the day of the resurrection. The first day of the week. This is the day of rejoicing. But then to even show more of his empathy to his disciples, the end of verse 22. Again, we see the contrast between the grief and the gladness, right? We see that in verse 20. We see that in verse 21. We see that in verse 22. He comforts them by adding, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Now before, if you look back at verse 16, Jesus said, a little while and you shall see me. Here Jesus changes it up a little bit. And he says, but I will see you again. 
Now, doesn't that show us even more the love and desire that Jesus had for his disciples? You know, it's one thing for his disciples to be able to see Jesus. You know, it's one thing if I had a friend who, when I was in elementary school, there was um, a young man, I think he was a grade lower than me, and he, he wanted to be the president of the United States. He had that aspiration. He was very politically oriented, and, and I, I told him, I said, you know, if you run, I'll vote for you. I mean, this was, I think he was in third grade, but I said, I, you know, 20 years from now, if you run, I'll vote for you. I like the guy. He's my friend. But I wonder that if he ever became president, I would see him, but probably not next to him. I'd probably see him from afar. Oh, yeah, there he is. That's my friend. That's the one I voted for. You know, and there's all these other rows of people that have helped him on the way. He's not even going to remember this guy back in third grade that say, I'll vote for you if you run. That's one thing. It's one thing for the disciples to be able to see Jesus. That can be done even from afar. But it's another thing entirely for Jesus to say here that he will see them. It's another thing entirely for, for the president of the United States or the governor of the state of Indiana to say, yeah, I remember you. I'll see you now. And he takes you into his office to communicate with you, and to talk with you, to hash out things from old times. It means that Jesus will be looking for them personally when he returns. It means that Jesus himself will be looking directly at them when he is resurrected. And at that moment, their heart that was filled with grief will rejoice and be filled with gladness. In fact, I love how it's put there in verse 22 because Jesus even says, your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man is taking from you. It's also in the present tense. The idea is, in verse 22, the sorrow that you have, you already have, but I've already placed in you the seed of joy, a seed of joy and hope and gladness in the promises that I've made to you through my coming and through my resurrection, through the coming of the Spirit, and that seed will continue to grow and blossom even beyond my resurrection into the hearts of all who come to faith in Christ. No one's going to take your joy from him. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his light brightened their darkness, and their longest night was over. And that would usher in an eternal day of joy, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You know, I mentioned earlier, that in verse 16, Jesus provided a basic timeline of his presence with his disciples, right? From the time of his departure, from them through his death. Again, he says, in a little while ye shall not see me. And then to the time of his return through the resurrection, in a little while ye shall see me. Now again, for his disciples, they had no idea what they were going to go through in both periods that he described. The period of grief and then the period of gladness. But for us... If we think about that general timeline of God's of Jesus' presence with his disciples, where are we in that timeline? Are we in the period of grief? Or are we in the period of gladness? We're in the period of gladness, aren't we? The resurrection has come. Jesus kept his promise. He said, in a little while, I, you will see me and I will see you. And that happened. That absolutely happened. Now, for his disciples... He knew they would be going through those periods, both of them. But for us, we only have to go through one of them. And that's the period of gladness. We are in the period of joy. Even though sometimes I think, when you look at Christians, are we still in the period of grief and mourning and sorrow? <laughs> Do you not have a risen Savior? Has not Jesus already come back to life? And yet, how many times do we feel like we're still living in that period of grief? As if Jesus is still dead. But he's not. We're in the period of gladness and rejoicing. The period that the disciples also would enjoy. You know what happened in John chapter 20, verse 20? We actually find Jesus' promise to hear fulfilled there. It says, when he appeared to his disciples... And he showed unto them his hands and his side. So they saw him and he saw them. Guess what? It says, then were the disciples glad when they saw their Lord. 
the period of gladness and rejoicing had begun. And it would only get more and greater with every passing moment. And so now we are living in the period not of grief, but of gladness, not of sorrow, but of joy. And the very cause of grief, the very death of Christ, has become the source of our joy and gladness in him. This too happened to the disciples. Now, again, we know that, the, that Jesus went back to his father again. <laughs> so he, he came back to life at the resurrection, spent 40 days with the disciples, teaching them, fellowshipping with them, doing many other wonders with them. And then he ascended back into heaven. You think, whoa, wait a second. You only said you're going to depart one time. <laughs> and then you might think, well, that, so there's another period of grief because Jesus isn't with us. So we had the grief, then we had the joy, but that was just for a short time. And now he's leaving again, and, and we're going to be grieving again? That's not what happened to the disciples. Listen to these words from Luke 24. This talks about the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. It says, Luke 24, 50, Jesus led his disciples as far out as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. We see this in Acts and then we're told what happened to the disciples. They didn't go back into a period of grief and mourning and sorrow. It says, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. With great joy. The period of grief was over. The period of gladness had begun. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen, Luke says. So why aren't we rejoicing Christians? Why don't we see ourselves in this period of gladness and joy? The period of grief is over for us. The period of gladness has begun. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And that's true even when we experience the distress in this world that, the, that Jesus told the disciples about. And even the distress and persecution by this world that Jesus told the disciples about. Again, Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, Think not it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, so that when his glory shall be revealed, that's his second coming, that's his second return, the second time where we will see him and he will see us, when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. What a wonderful thing. We're in the period of gladness. So the promise that Jesus made to his disciples about the resurrection, we can apply in our lives, in our situation, to that second return, that second coming of Christ. Because we see from other places in the Bible that just in just a little while more, Jesus will come back for us so that we will see him and he will see us and be with us. And if these promises don't bring you joy, what else can? What other things in this world can bring you joy except the return of Christ through his resurrection and then at the end, his return for you? This morning, live in the joy of Jesus. Live in the joy of Jesus as the resurrection and the life. The, live in the joy of Jesus as your resurrection and your life. If you're in Christ, you do not live in the period of sorrow and grief. You live in the period of joy and gladness. So rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ, the King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you again for the grace that you showed to your disciples in these amazing ways. To reveal to them, yes, there is going to be a period of greater grief and sorrow for them when Jesus would depart from them by means of his death. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for them. We have a little glimpse of Peter and how he felt over his denial of the Lord three times, but we get a glimpse of the women as they would have come that first day to the grave to prepare the Lord for burial and to see the Lord. 
in his grave. But still, I, I can't put myself there. I, I can't fully fathom the grief and the sorrow that they would have experienced, the, the weeping and the lamentation and the sorrow. But Lord, we're thankful that you also made them a promise that in just a little while, that period would be over and the period of joy and gladness would begin because they would see Jesus again, personally, physically, with their own eyes, and Jesus himself would see them, welcoming them, wanting to talk to them and fellowship with them and to teach them even more, to prepare them for this world. Oh, Father, what a, what a day of rejoicing that would have been. And Lord, what a day of rejoicing it is for us. We live in the period of gladness and joy in the resurrected Christ. And so, Father, I pray that whatever we face, whatever we go through, whatever change we experience, whatever challenge, oh, Father, help us to not languish again in the darkness of the night of sorrow and grief, but rather to look up and see that Jesus is alive, that Jesus did come back from the dead. Jesus did keep all of those promises, and he will continue to keep those promises, the promises in which he gave to all of us where he will return and he will receive us unto, unto himself so that where he is, there we may be also forever. So, Father, help us to live in the joy of Jesus, the joy of Jesus in his resurrection, the joy of Jesus in his life. And, Father, I pray that you'll convict us and show us that if we are still languishing in those doldrums of the period of grief, that, Lord, you will instill in us that greater desire to live in the light and the joy of this new day, this resurrection day, the day of Christ's life and resurrection, which he now gives to all who believe in him. Thank you, Lord, that it only was a little while to turn their sorrow into joy. May you do the same for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.